Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. This week I'm talking to Rachel Dawson about her historical novel Neon Roses. Rachel is a lesbian working class Welsh writer. She was born in Swansea and has done a variety of jobs including selling sausage rolls and vibrators not at the same time and volunteering for an MP. She now works in the third sector and lives with her wife in Cardiff. In 2020, she was awarded a bursary by Literature Wales, which enabled her to write her debut novel. In this episode, we discuss showcasing Wales in her proudly Welsh book, her ambition to write an empowering and empowered queer book, and how lesbian punk photography informed the creation of her love interest. But before that, here's Rachel with an excerpt from Neon Roses. Elinid watches the bubbles in her beer rise to the top. June frets at her fingernails, splitting the ends into flakes. What else do you do up London? June must have some stories. Gigs, clubs, that sort of thing. I'm an artist. Oh, tremendous. I love art. Elinid was hoping it would be someone like-minded. June widens her eyes. What sort of stuff do you do? Elinid hasn't done anything proper with paints and cups of murky water since she was at school. She and Mabs used to work for hours, foil tubes scattered over the kitchen table. All she ever does now is doodle models from the magazines to fill time when the shop is quiet. Clothes, people... Good for you, June says, resting her chin on her palm again. Her elbow splays out along the bar, dangerously close to someone else's pint. What about you? Alina asks. I print, mainly, but I'll give anything a go. June thumbs at a small brooch on her lapel. I made this. The brooch is made of small red beads strung on wire. 
twisted into a lumpy shape like a wishbone with a ball sack hanging inside it. Helena can't work it out. She bends towards June, squints when she tries to work out what she's looking at. June smirks. It's a clit. That's what it looks like underneath. It's a scandal that women are taught that it's a tiny nub instead of this big, powerful thing. Big and powerful? It's hardly pissing Night Rider. June throws back her head and laughs. Alina gets a better look at her teeth now. Her pointy canine juts proudly out from the gum and overlaps the next tooth along. Mably squints over at them, nursing a second glass of wine. Alina hopes Mably's getting a real eyeful of them chatting. Drink it in. It's been so long since she's spoken to anyone other than her family, Meyer and Lloyd. June is a cold lemon squash on a hot afternoon. Hi Rachel, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Neon Roses. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. So can you start by telling us what Neon Roses is about? Uh, Neon Roses is a lesbian coming-of-age novel and it's set against the political backdrop of the 1980s, starting at the miners' strike and finishing around the implementation of Section 28. There's lots of fashion and music references. Um, I hope it's uplifting and fun for readers. It is totally a joyously 80s novel and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, it's a very Welsh novel as well and I know we'll talk a bit about that, but Tell us where the inspiration came from to write this book. Um, it probably started when I watched the film Pride for the first time. I went to see it in the cinema, um, I think three times. And then I went to an 80s um, night in the place that cropped up in the novel, actually. It was called The Tunnel, which is a nightclub. And now it's Metro's. And I even looked at having the book launch there, maybe. But it's not an accessible venue because you have to go down a flight of stairs, um, hence The Tunnel. But they had a sort of back to the 80s night. In the 80s, it was a real gay bar. Now it's a rock bar. Um, and me and my friends all dressed up as 80s people and it was a really great time. Um, I've always loved 80s music. My favourite band is Depeche Mode. I love Kate Bush as well. Um, I've always been an 80s freak. But I remember just being flabbergasted that I'd been raised in South Wales by openly socialist parents. But yeah, I hadn't heard of this hidden history and I was just fascinated by it. And then as time went on, I started to think more about the relevance of like strikes to our own our own current times um, and the relevance of Section 28 when you're looking at how transphobia has developed in the UK and what's going on there. Um, and I wanted to write something that I would want to read. So a sort of fun, uplifting novel with sexy bits, um, but that also had a sort of strong message and where you would learn something about history or about politics, because that's what I like to read. <laughs> Mm. yeah as soon as you said pride actually as soon as I was reading the book I was like this is the perfect novel for anyone whose favorite film is pride and who wants to learn a bit more about the minor strike um you know because obviously pride has a kind of more I guess obviously you do see the Welsh town but you're focused more on the London characters whereas this your novel is totally the opposite it's such a proudly Welsh novel um and I wondered kind of how I mean, to me, it felt so fresh to have this such a strong Welsh setting and Welsh voices and character names and everything. How important to you was it to have this Welsh representation on the page? 
Oh, so important. I think there's not a lot of good Welsh representation on a national stage. I think Welsh people make a lot of really great art, but a lot of it we keep to ourselves sometimes. Um, there's loads of really great theatre going on in Cardiff that I've had the privilege to see um, about Wales. But I think on a national stage, you get the impression that Welsh people are thick. Um, and it, oh, Gavin and Stacey is amazing I love it but it is a really good example of that and I remember at university being asked to like parrot phrases from the thing from the um show and being asked like oh do you have this in Wales with this being something really basic I can't think of any good examples now but yeah always being treated like a thicko in um, Fern Brady's autobiography which I was reading recently she talks a little bit about being Scottish and how it's a similar thing and how she was invited onto panel shows in England and she'd be asked about like fried Mars bars and stabbings and the Glasgow smile and all that and she was like well this just isn't representative of where I'm from and the people that I'm surrounded by I think it's a similar thing here and that was one thing I adored about Pride because even though you do see it I would say from the English perspective, like you've got Bromley as your main character and you're seeing the world through his eyes. And even when they travel to Ontline, there's like a little joke about, oh, there's not many consonants in that road sign. Um, <laughs> all the Welsh characters are really dignified and heroic. Mm. And yeah, I think there should be more of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're such a, such a Welsh cast. You've got such a kind of variety of characters in yours. Tell us a little bit more about Alinaid, your main character, and how we find her at the start of this novel. Um, I would say she was a very determined person, um, very artistic, very confident. She's the elder sister in her family and has been somewhat indulged by two um, loving parents. And it's a very warm, stable family. Um, things are beginning to get a bit more tricky. Her younger sister has started going out with a policeman, which the family aren't too keen on, A, because he's older, and B, because their political beliefs aren't compatible with him and his political beliefs, and the younger sister is taking on some of these beliefs too. Um, Alina, I think she's almost like a big fish in a small pond. She is part of a world that makes sense. Um, she's got a boyfriend that she's very comfortable with. They've been together a long time, um, and she feels very easy with him. But she's unsure of what she wants to do next. Um, she's a bit scared at the expectation of marriage and babies on the horizon. And then if she could choose anything and it was a free choice, um, she would choose to move away and get some more life experience. And she'd like to do something glamorous involving fashion or pop music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the fashion and the music in this book. And um, she works in a shoe shop and it's like that frustrated thing when you're teenager living maybe in a smaller town and you're just like I want to be in the city and I want to be doing this really big exciting life and she doesn't get that but then Elenid meets June tell us about June and tell us about a little bit how you kind of created her was she like your I don't know it's making that kind of dream fantasy woman that walks into her life that's a little bit about that <laughs> Lots <laughs> of people have asked me that, but I think it's genuinely the opposite. I think my fantasy <laughs> woman would be like Nigella Lawson, Penelope Cruz, May Muller, like gracious <laughs> and dark haired and definitely a femme. Mm -hmm. Um, although that's totally flexible actually in real life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think Jude is the opposite in Alinid in some ways. Alinid perceives her as being really confident because she lives in London and because she's like a punk and she's got this sort of dykey, punky aesthetic. But actually, in reality, June's a little more insecure and hasn't had the solid grounding of sensible, loving parents behind her. Um, and I was really inspired by pictures of punk photography um, and the sort of girls that or young women that were quite sort of frail and delicate, but had the most like overpoweringly gorgeous and strong makeup and piercings and tattoos and a sort of um, juxtaposition of that. I was inspired by the photography of Donna Gottschalk, um, who's a lesbian photographer. Um, when I went to New York on my honeymoon, we went to an exhibition of her photography in the Leslie Lohman Gallery. And there were all these just beautiful images of her lovers um, in their homes across America. Um, and I started to like make notes on, for the novel then back in 2018. Um, I was making notes about a potential love interest. But I did try and bind them together with an interest in art. Um, and June's not actually from London, she's from the Midlands. I think there's some sim similarities there about growing up in a sort of semi-rural environment um, and a very staunchly labour environment. They, they come from the same sort of world in that respect. Mm. Um, I also inf was informed with June's background by listening to the Logbooks podcast, particularly the episode that talks about homelessness in London, um, and also reading about squatting and the squatting movement of the 1980s in London. There's so much history in your book and I feel like it's it's the history we don't get to hear about often. And of course, there's such a kind of fraught political backdrop to the novel, what with the strikes and, and kind of the unrest as well. How did you kind of balance the real and the fictional? Because obviously politics plays a huge part in it, but you want it to be a fun novel and you want it to be, you want it to feel authentic, but... You also don't want to make it too, I guess, depressing or too, yeah. too kind of, uh, I don't know, textbook. So how did you kind of balance the, the real life and, and the fictional? Um, it is a bit of a struggle because I am a total nerd. Um, although it was helpful to have the real events as a framework because I could, I knew when the protests against Section 28 were, I knew when the minor strike began and ended. So I could use those as a bit of a framework. Um, but the thing is with history, it's just, it keeps on opening out. It's like a big, long telescope. And you, you start reading about one thing and then you end up reading about like um the fight of women for custody of their children during the 1980s, where they'd left their husbands and their husbands were able to get custody. Or you start reading the experiences of black lesbians um, and of like fascist activity in London and the National Front in Brixton and protests against them. And it just keeps on going and going and going and sometimes <laughs> knowing where to stop. Um, but I've tried to put in little sort of, not Easter eggs, but like references to those struggles in side characters mm. that perhaps not everyone's going to pick up, but hopefully some people do. Um, I think there's a couple of times where I bent the truth and probably the biggest example of that is Alina's experience of police violence on the pickets towards the start of the novel, which um, is very inspired by a famous picture taken of Leslie Bolton at the Battle of Orgreave. And in fact, the Battle of the um, Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign, I think that's the name of the charity, used that image on their merchandise and on their website. And it's a very iconic picture of the minor strike, which is why I chose to 
write a scene inspired by that photograph, even though, um, as far as I'm aware, that sort of police violence against women didn't happen in the South Wales Valleys. Although I, there might be an incident that wasn't recorded in the sources that I consulted. Tell us a little bit then about the research that you did, because obviously you did so much with the with the politics and the history, but you also got the kind of fun, vivid 80s side of it to explore. So the fashion, the music, you say you're already a fan of uh, the uh, music and maybe a fan of fashion, I don't know. But uh, what, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the, the research that you did. Oh, I had so much fun with the research. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, in terms of actual archives, a lot of the novel was written during the pandemic or rewritten during the pandemic. So I wasn't able to go to as many archives as I'd hoped to. But um, I went to the Bishopsgate Archive and looked at their Welsh collection and also their collection on um, kink and sexuality. I was able to look at lots of copies of um, off on our backs the lesbian sort of porn magazine of the 80s that was really enjoyable um and on youtube is just a wealth of information you can watch the whole of the bbc coverage of the 1987 election on there so you can work out which constituencies um declared first so then you can be more realistic when you're writing your characters responding to the election which i know is totally nerdy but is part of my process the same with um cars and with fashion there's lots of people driving around on youtube in 1980s cars you can check what the dashboards would have looked like um and actually manchester university's fashion department have put fashion shows of their students fashion from the 80s so i was watching a lot of that um and on the internet in general you can find out what the top 10 was of any given week or you can look at the Argos catalogue, you can find out how much a Walkman would have cost and then work out how much a wage would have been. And then from there, you can work out how long a character might have to save in order to buy her first Walkman. Um, similarly, there's the Manchester Dance Music Archive, which is a great archive of posters for bands. Um, and there's a similar group in Cardiff, but I don't think there's as much material uploaded on it. But in Manchester, what was particularly helpful is someone had digitised like a sort of gay free magazine that you can pick up in the gay bars. Um, and there was two women that had gone around and reviewed from a queer woman's perspective all of the gay bars in Manchester in 1987. So that was hugely helpful. <laughs> um, I was also able to talk to some queer elders, Lisa Power, who's an amazing woman. I think she was the first lesbian woman to talk at the UN. Um, and she lives in Cardiff now. She was kind enough to talk to me. Um, I talked to my auntie and I talked to an older trans woman who I met during my actual day job, I suppose. But um, we were like just chatting. And I ran a few things past her because she was very interested in the novel. Well, your research sounds amazing. I'm kind of envious about how much you, how much fun you had, how vivid it was. It sounds so exciting. Um, yeah, and it was really moving to be in the People's History Museum and yeah. hold the original LGSM documents in my hand, like mm. letters and Christmas cards. Um, it gave you like full body shivers. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I think the, the fortunate thing is when you're writing a novel that's recent history is there's so much of it still around. And like you say, you get to touch it, you get to experience it in that way. And mm -hmm. I think that just adds another layer to the novel. It's it's not just, um, you know, when, when people write historical novels and they have to do a lot of guessing and a lot of kind of creative, uh, well, just creative mining of their own imagination, really. But when you've got the 
the recent history available to you it gives so much depth and and kind of color to your novel as well and I think that's what your novel does so brilliantly it's so uh transportive you're reading it and you're kind of thrown well I wasn't I was only born in 88 so I can't comment on what it was like to to be in the 80s but it certainly feels I'm an 89 baby <laughs> well there we go um but it certainly feels authentic to me I want to touch a little bit more on June and we're gonna to have to mention the sex scenes because this book is <laughs> incredibly filthy <laughs> don't deny it Rachel um so how did you approach writing the sex scenes? Was it a case of, I mean, you've you've said to me off off uh, off air that your mum's quite um, okay with you writing the sex scenes, but did you have to kind of close your eyes and just block out everyone and write things that you wanted to write? Or did, did you ever think, oh God, my auntie's going to read this or, or whatever it was? What was the experience like? Oh, I think Sarah would enjoy it. Um, <laughs> I also like consulted with my mum a couple of times and like you know so how far would you go on a first date in the 80s or what is the sexiest lingerie that you would have worn out to a nightclub to pull in the 80s or what was a good example of a chat up line and she was quite down for that chat um yeah I think I've always really enjoyed writing about sex I think it stems from when my wife and I have been together since I was 17 and she was 18 and um, when she was 19 she lived in Thailand for a year and we used to send each other through the post letters and they would often be like written fantasies of like you know when you come home blah 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 um so I think that's what <laughs> that um helped me develop a taste for writing that sort of thing um but when I was starting writing the novel from the beginning I wanted Alina to be unapologetically fat and queer and for it to be about women having fun and I think recently there's been a big upsurge in that sort of material for a sapphic or queer women and non-binary people um people's view um and gaze you've got in at the deep end by Kate Davis um, Paul takes the form of a mortal girl, is really sexy and hot. There's like an upsurge of interest, I would say, in material, like off our back, on our backs. There's attempts to digitise it and put it online. And similarly, there's a big upsurge in sort of queer kinky nights. Um, in Cardiff, we've just got one called Kink, um, which is not a play party, but, you know, you can wear anything you like and they advertise themselves as a queer night. Um, they've got one night parties in London. There's a lot um, of women and non-binary people having fun and owning their own bodies going on at the moment. And I wanted to be part of that and celebrate that. Yeah, because I, I one thing I noticed in the novel was that Alina doesn't have any, doesn't really have any kind of struggle over her sexuality. She kind of just embraces it, fancies Jean, goes for it. And I mean, I'm, I'm guessing was that, a, a deliberate choice to make it you know to make her be so open and so excited about embracing this new opportunity and also her sexuality is received so positively was that a deliberate choice that you made yeah I think so otherwise it'd be a bit miserable and unreadable really um and one moment that is kind of drawn from my own life is when she gets the well of loneliness out of the library and is quite disappointed by what she finds because I had I came out at 18. No, that's a lie. I came out at 14. 
And around the same time, my mum bought me uh, an anthology of gay and lesbian literature from our local Oxfam shop. They've still got it upstairs. And they've got extracts. And I was like so greedily reading them. But so many of them were about misery and pain. Um, and lots of them I've returned to as an adult and really appreciate them for what they are. Like Giovanni's Room is probably one of my favourite books of all time. But um, I really wanted to write something different that was empowered and empowering. Um, I never really wanted to write a coming out narrative, but I tried looking for different ways of telling the story. But I just sort of kept on coming back to this one as being the clearest. So in some ways, Alina's journey is quite different from my own because she doesn't really realise that she fancies girls until she finds June. Um, whereas I came out much younger, I was 14. I knew from a very very early age that I was queer um, and I actually talked to a Christian friend um, who I can't remember which denomination she's part of but it's one of the more sort of hardline um, denominations of Christianity about her own sexuality and she was saying that when she was younger and in the church when she felt feelings towards young other young women she would sort of say oh well it's just because she's really pious and she's really close to Jesus and that's what's given me these good feelings because we're both Christians together and I wrote a sort of similar moment for Alina with June where she's like oh it's because June's like a proper socialist and I'm a socialist and this is comradeship and this is solidarity and this is that's what my feelings are it's the amazing feeling of solidarity with another worker <laughs> and, and all the readers are going uh no it's because you fancy her yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and as for her parents I think when I did some more research like um what's it called I think it's called Pride the Untold Story by Tim Tate um which was produced by a lot of the original LGSM members and members of the mining community in the South Wales Valleys um to go along with the film this sort of debate about whether we take the money or not was something that was sort of um, developed as a narrative device for the film. And even if you go on YouTube and type in Dancing in Dulice, you'll get Sean James, who is a, a character in the film, but also an amazing Labour Party MP, um, talking about the lesbians and gays in very positive terms in that film back in 1984. It's part of like wanting to represent Wales well, that it's not a backwards place, that you can be forward thinking even in a rural community. Mm. And I think it's a shame that it we almost have this, I mean, obviously there are elements of the past where people were bigoted and, and had a bad reaction, but there would have been people who weren't and would, would be, would embrace their children. And, and, you know, it's nice to see that in this novel and it's nice that you have that kind of warmth in it too. I want to touch on your, your kind of writing in general. And I was interested to know kind of what part of the process, what part of writing is it that you enjoy the most and what is it that you hate or what is it that you enjoy the least? What What is the kind of, what are the challenges for you and what are the moments where you're like, I'm loving this and I'm really enjoying writing? <laughs> um, I think probably give my, showed my hand a bit early. Um, I'm very research driven and I feel like I can't start until I know all the facts. Um, I really like graphs and charts and things that I can sort of tangibly see. Um, I love to draw as well as to write. 
Um, so quite a few times I've sort of drawn like when you've got a character when you've got characters in an argument I almost draw them as if I'm giving stage directions in terms of the proximity to each other or the body language whether someone's standing up and someone's sitting down whether someone's leaning forward or leaning back um, I also really like um, I've probably got it somewhere I've got a big chart that I made myself, which is like a timeline of the minor strike. And it'd be sort of Kinnock makes this speech on this day, Thatcher makes this speech on this day, and this riot happens in Nottingham or whatever it is. Um, and then I've got where the characters are in that point of time as well, whether they're um, living with their boyfriends or they, they've moved to Manchester or whatever. Um, I've got all of those dates. And so I've got that as a handy reference point. Yeah, it's the planning I really love, but also the early stages where it just feels like you're driving on open roads and you're just controlling the page and everything's all fresh and new. I love that. What do you not enjoy then? What's your least favourite part? Oh, I like the handwrite, but I hate typing up and the sort of editing and going back over your own work. I know some writers say that it's like putting the clay down and then the editing is the shaping of the clay that oh, I find it difficult to take myself in hand sometimes <laughs> and get that work done uh you and I are the total opposites Rachel because that's, oh. that's my favorite part <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of people like yourself as well it for me it's the I hate the bit of getting out the words that I know are going to be deleted and I know mm. are actually rubbish but they need to be there to kind of get from A to B and and it's to me I hate that part um so it's nice to hear someone that enjoys that that like you said the open road I wish I could think of it as the open road I tend to think of it as just like getting rid of the crap <laughs> you know yeah, that's <laughs> so what's your kind of how did you get to this point then because I know you studied English literature at uni and uh, I'm kind of intrigued to know your kind of journey to this point how you got your agent what's your story there and so I didn't do any creative writing modules at uni. I simply wouldn't have had the confidence. I really struggled with my mental health at uni. I went from being really confident at secondary school and having a lot of friends and feeling like I really fit in. I was a goth and all that. And then when I went to university, I found it very depressingly sort of normy. I was in a flat with like six skinny girls from the home counties who were one of them actually said, I can't watch Billy Elliot because films about poor people make me depressed. I remember that until the day I die. Um, and another one was like, I don't think gays should have children or be around children. Similarly, we'll remember that until the day I die. Like, oh. where did they find these people? Um, and I just didn't fit in in that environment. So yeah, I, I wouldn't have had any confidence to do creative writing at university. But then when I left, um, you know, you leave and you get a job and all that. And I was thinking, oh, I want to find some friends and get some hobbies. And I joined a writer's group that um, someone who's now a really good friend of mine, but who at the time was a stranger, she just set up a, um, a writer's group in my neighbourhood in Cardiff. And I thought, well, it seems easier than like yoga or something. And I got really into like performance poetry. Um, and I went to lots of open mic nights and was really involved with that community and I found a lot of friendship and enjoyment through doing that and it helped my confidence no end and then um I left a really toxic job and I was feeling quite weird um I had a bit of a manic period dyed my hair pink got some piercings 
Um, <laughs> and I was writing, like writing like a demon up until three in the morning, couldn't stop writing. Um, and I wrote lots of very personal kind of raw things that I don't think will ever see the light of day. And then when the fog cleared, I was like, do you know what I'd really like to write? A sort of 80s love story with some politics in it. Um, and then I was working on that. And then the same friend that ran the writers group, Christina Thatcher, she's amazing, suggested to me that I might like to apply for um, a bursary from Literature Wales, which can help people in Wales develop their literature. They run a lot of like free lectures and stuff online. And I won a bursary um, and a year of mentorship from Rebecca F. John. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot out of that. I got a lot out of working with Rebecca. I completely overhauled and rewrote Neon Roses. Um, and she's really, really great as a teacher. And then I was looking for agents because Rebecca suggested that that might be the next step in my journey. Um, and I was just making a note of writers that I respect and who agents them. And also what agencies on Twitter are making it clear that they're open to um, sort of beginner writers, writers not from London, working class writers, queer writers. Um, and one name that came a lot up a lot was Green and Heaton. And I know that they represent Juliet Jakes, they represent Kate Davies, they represent Sarah Waters. And I thought, oh, that would be a really, really aspirational place for me to be. Um, and then I was reading a blog on their website that was like what our agents are reading during lockdown. And Imogen, um, who is my agent now, our reading tastes just really kind of vibed with each other. So I messaged her with my three opening chapters. Um, and then I also said, if you don't like it, here are some book recommendations, perhaps, based on the <laughs> blog. Um, and she got back to me right away and said, well, I actually have read and love all three of the books that you've mentioned as your recommended reads. Um, and she went away and read mine and got back to me with an offer of representation. And it was just brilliant. She's phenomenal. She's so determined and resilient. And even when you're in the sort of dark days of waiting for subs, she's to find out how your submissions went she would always be there with like a positive word or like you know don't give up she's just great that sounds amazing I love that you gave her some book recommendations as well I've not heard that as a technique to get an agent but who knows (laughs) might be the future well I just thought if she looked at mine and felt completely depressed by it maybe if she hadn't heard of these (laughs) other books she she'd get something out of the email at least (laughs) so Thinking about your kind of publishing experience, I know like there's been a lot of talk lately about debuts and the kind of how difficult it can be mentally and emotionally. Has there been anything that you found particularly difficult or challenging kind of throughout the publishing process? Um, and if there has, like what advice would you give to people who are perhaps going to be going through it next year or the year after? What would your advice be to them? Um, I think being on sub is hard. Waiting for news is hard. Um, Imogen and I had a really good strategy of she would give me a sort of roundup of that week's nose on a Thursday morning. So I wasn't like looking at my inbox the rest of the time. I knew that the news would come on a Thursday morning. Um, and it, it's really hard if you're not from that world and you don't have many friends that have gone through it or family members that have gone through it to sort of talk about it without sounding a bit odd. Um, so definitely finding a community of writers, whether that's online or in your local community, 
is definitely something that I would advise and sort of enjoying the little moments because you don't really realize that you're climbing a mountain as you're climbing it you're just thinking about the next problem and the next problem but if I could go back in time and tell a younger version of me or you've completed a novel and the first draft's pretty good I'd be impressed and if I could go back and tell myself well you won a, a bursary I'd be really impressed and all of those seemed like oh, okay great like what's the next hurdle what's the next hurdle but just sort of stop and enjoy the fact that you've got as far as you've got because that's phenomenal and you should be really impressed with yourself is what I would say to anyone going through that process I think it's hard sometimes to be part of the team of Neon Roses coming up to publication like obviously I've written it and it's my baby in that respect but there's a massive team at John Murray Press who are doing their very best to get it out on the shelf from the people that designed the cover to the editors the sales and marketing people and in some ways I'm part of their team and they're really great about passing information over to me and telling me what I need to know but also I'm almost like a client in a way where they go away and they have their own internal meetings and maybe they talk about capacity within the team and they talk about budgets and I'm not privy to that information because I don't need to know it but also there is part of me because I'm a bit of a control freak that wants that information (laughs) and you just got to be content and trust that the experts are doing their job and they're going to do their job to the best of their ability because they believe in you because they've bought into um into what you've produced mm, I think that is one of the hardest things and everyone I've spoke to over the past couple of years about the publishing process is that you go from being just you and your book to having a team of people that are perhaps having conversations and making decisions that a you might not have a lot of say in or have a lot of control about and you have to just kind of you know hope for the best really and it's the same with book sales and everything like that at the end of the day you've done your bit in terms of the writing of the book and the editing and all the rest and the rest is completely out of your control and it's <laughs> in some ways it's maybe it's uh kind of reassuring because there's nothing you can do but in some ways I think all of us are sitting there being like should I be doing something or have I done enough? Yeah. um but there is nothing, you know, there's nothing that we can do as authors. We just have to kind of hope for the best and hope we've written a, a book that connects to people, which I'm sure yours will, because there's so much to love about it. Thank you. I think having my wife being a stage manager for the theatre helps in a way, because she talks about how writers for the theatre are in a similar position. But her job as a stage manager is to get the best version of that play on that stage working with the director and the rest of the team and that's very reassuring just imagine like a whole team of Bethans <laughs> but oh they are all brilliant um the, the team at John Murray I'm very lucky there mm. so finally Rachel can you tell us a little teaser maybe of what you're <laughs> working on next yeah I've got a project but it's very much in the beginning stages um this time I've chosen to write in the first person um it's quite a personal topic but I would say that it was about queer community and unconventional families and resilience is the teaser that I've written down <laughs> yeah you practiced your little teaser there well that sounds great and and I'm sure I mean I'm, I'm excited to see what it's going to be and I'm sure you're going to have fun with your charts and your uh, your intense planning session. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had time for much of that, so I'm trying to just get the words out. But I'm finding that I'm just writing lots of like square brackets where I need to like 
or fill in this blank with something that I know I've researched <laughs> and tested. And then your future self will read that back and be like, oh, Rachel, why did you not do the work at the time? That's what I do. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rachel Dawson talking about her historical novel, Neon Roses, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>